Welcome to the podcast for Hurston on Tennessee Family Law. I'm K.O. Hurston, a family law attorney in Knoxville and the author of Hurston on Tennessee Family Law. This episode continues my conversation with Judge Bill Swan, the man who presided over the dedicated family law court in Knoxville for 32 years. If you haven't heard the last episode, I suggest you stop right here and go back to listen to it because this episode picks up where that one left off. Having dealt with family law issues for so long, Judge Swan has seen it all. He knows how painful it is to go through a divorce. It's, it's, it's tremendously wounding. It hurts the person who's going, who's going through it. It takes at least three years to adjust to the new landscape if you have invested any emotion in the marriage, and most people do. It's a, it's a wounding event. At the same time, he and I both know that family law can be fascinating. People are infinitely interesting, and that's one of the great things about uh, being on the bench is you get to meet so many people who are so different. It's just an absolute delight. I never, never was bored, never was burned out. I, I like people, and I like their stories. In this episode, Judge Swan talks about the biggest substantive changes he's seen in Tennessee family law during his tenure on the bench. He talks about what he found to be the most rewarding types of cases and the most difficult. I also get him to predict the future and talk about his life after leaving the bench. In your time on the bench, what were the most significant changes that you've seen in family law? The growth of mediation certainly uh, has reduced the uh, number of litigated cases. That's one thing. A change that took decades to be achieved was the recognition that the courts not only were supposed to be, but had to be gender neutral when it came to custody cases. You had to have an open mind and not uh, have any, any sort of sex bias. That was a huge change uh, for practitioners in 82 and 83. That was an earthquake to, to actually have a judge who approached things uh, neutrally that way. So mediation uh, and the recognition of, of, of gender neutrality would probably be the two biggest changes. So let's talk first about the Tender Years Doctrine. Explain mm-hmm. to folks what that was. Well, the Tender Years Doctrine said that there was a period of time during which the child should be pretty much with, with, with the mother or with the, the parent that had rendered the most hands-on care, which statistically was overwhelmingly the female parent. It was actually a statute that said if you've got a young child, if we're dealing with a custody decision involving a young child, there's a presumption that custody should go to the mother. Yeah, yeah. And so when was it, like 86 or 88, somewhere in that range, that that statute was removed? Yeah. I'm thinking back to my first you know, four years on the bench and wondering how I dealt with that because I did deal with it. I immediately had an open mind as to who was the better parent, and I was open to proof on that point. So I must have at that time uh, thought, well, the legislature has said this, but it has not precluded a judge from using his or her brain. Well, all, yeah, of course, because it just created a presumption. A presumption can be rebutted. 
uh, but it sort of shifts that burden of proof to, or it did, to the father to prove why that presumption is not in the child's best interest, which effectively, you know, created a, a pretty big hurdle that a father Indeed. had to had to clear. Indeed. Indeed. And many attorneys undertook that uh, willingly and gladly and, and were successful. Of course, you had to have a strong case. As I said, family law cases are so fact-driven. Uh, you can have all the desire in the world, but if you have not uh, been going to the school and visiting with the teacher and going to the PTA meetings and taking the child to the pediatrician and helping with the homework and going to the baseball practices, you know, you're SOL. The heavy lifting. The heavy lifting. Several years ago, the the best interest statute was amended to include language that, frankly, had been in other statutes all along, that when considering the, the child's best interest, you're to keep in mind the uh, the goal of allowing both parents to enjoy the maximum participation in the child's life. Um, so how do you think that has affected things? That has affected the practice of law. Uh, it you know, counsel will cite that when they when they come to the podium and say, you know, we are called upon to maximize the participation of each parent. And, you know, the other side does not want this to be maximized. And this would be far better for for these children if. And so they argue for it. And uh, that's a powerful argument. I mean, the legislature has spoken. Right. So in in your three plus decades on the bench, did you observe fathers getting more parenting time yes. and and uh, being i guess more frequently awarded custody yes of the children yes is that attributed to anything other than the tender years doctrine going away maybe social science research uh, advancing that shows the importance of two active parents i mean to what do you attribute that all of those things plus the uh, the destruction or the abolition of the presumption that frankly was abroad in the land and still is abroad in some parts of the land, that uh, it is the female who should have the dominant uh, care of the child. Yeah, what I always tell people is past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. And the person Except who has. Except with mutual funds. Okay, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> but the person who sacrificed their lifestyle for the benefit of the children in the past, the one who's taken days off work to stay home with the sick kid, the one that gets them to the doctor, the one that does the not not glamorous side of parenting, that that's indicative of the person who's likely to do that in the future. Yes. To put the children ahead of themselves. And that's what judges are looking for when one of the things in determining who's been the primary caregiver, that's sort of why the primary caregiver is such an important factor in the best interest I analysis. I agree. I agree. Mediation did it not exist back in 1982? Was there no sort of informal way of resolving cases? Lawyers negotiated cases, always have and always will negotiate cases. But there was not uh, a Supreme Court Rule 31. There was not, in 1982, a state-recognized way to proceed through alternative dispute resolution. I may be misspeaking here, but I think that's accurate. Probably the federal statute, the federal uh, bench, had mediation long before the state did. I'd yeah, have to but check I don't on think that. that. I think that was in the early '90s in federal court. Okay. Mediation has been wildly successful at the lowest level of uh, contested litigation in Tennessee, in Knox County, the Sixth Judicial District. I speak of the General Sessions Court, where uh, dollars and cents cases are routinely mediated with great success and satisfaction uh, to the litigants. Also, as I understand, 
with great success at juvenile court, where the parties are also unrepresented. Those are largely non-lawyer mediators in both mm-hmm. places. And as I understand, it is a great success in both venues. So looking back on all the types of cases that you dealt with in the realm of family law, are there any types of cases that you view as the most rewarding types of cases, like where you would come home at night and say, you know, I really made the world better today. I, I changed someone's life and just have that sense of accomplishment and, and I guess pride and your ability to affect someone else's life in such a meaningful way. Yes. Um, domestic violence cases in which you are able to help the victim. Custody cases in which it is clear that you have made the right decision in placing the dominant time with party A or, or party B. The third category of the most rewarding family law cases is adoptions. I did adoptions for a number of years, always loved them. People still thank me and come up to me at Walmart and say, you remember that little Johnny and so forth. Thereby hangs a tale. The adoption statute changed dramatically about the same time that the order of protection, the domestic violence statute, was introduced. I was talking with my colleagues from Chancery Court at one point, and uh, I, was, I was talking about the, ch- the changes to the adoption statute, which made it something that I was really going to have to study, and I wasn't looking forward to doing that. And they said, well, why don't you just let us take all the adoptions? And we don't like this order protection statute. Why don't, why don't you take those? And like Jack, who's trading his mother's cow, I agreed to that. <laughs> and thereby hangs the story of the development of Fourth Circuit Court as a a revolutionary changer in the way that domestic violence was treated in a circuit court. We developed the, the civil statute for orders of protection to really assist victims. And you come home from those cases, uh, and these are always the cases that you do remember of the of the person, and it's usually the female, although males can be victims. It's the, it's the tremendously victimized female who has been granted a new lease on life and needs counseling thereafter to, to get over the hugely damaging effects of having been dehumanized for years. So the DV case that comes out right, the custody case that comes out right, and the adoption cases that you didn't get to do. <laughs> What were the most challenging types of cases that Post-divorce you Post-divorce custody cases are the worst in the world. Really? Post- worse than parental relocation? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, there's more uh, post-divorce custody cases than there are parental relocation cases. And the bad thing about post-divorce custody cases is the people are set in their ways. They are bringing this case because each of them is convinced that, by God, such and such has got to change. Both of them are convinced of that. Uh, they are tough to mediate, they are tough to try, and then they become gargantuan when there has been clinical psychologists on either or both sides. Because then you've got expert testimony issues and the case just snowballs and gets larger and larger and larger. Parental relocation is uh, uh, a particular bear because it is so disruptive. The legislature crafted a good statute which I understand has somewhat been loosened. Well, the Supreme Court and the Aragon case, is that? Take me there. Well, there they deal with, like, the reasonable purpose. What does reasonable purpose exactly. mean? And they Weasel certainly words. loosened that definition. Yeah, they loosened that. It used to be, 
so difficult to uh, deny the dominant possessive parent the ability to move. I mean, you had to prove one of three right. darn near impossible things to prove. That's still there. Yeah, that's still there, but reasonable purpose has been loosened. So I, I think it's. I think we're back to you know prior to the Aragon case, there was a lot of case law that dealt with you have to weigh the impact on the other parent. So if the mother is trying to move away, you had to consider the the impact on the father, and, and so you had this sort of weighing uh, analysis that went on that the Supreme Court effectively wiped off the table. And so now we just if it's if it is a reasonable purpose, then that presumption kicks in. You you don't go into this weighing analysis. So it it I think made it probably back more toward the original intent of uh, there's this presumption, and unless you've got a significant proof of one of these three things, then they're moving. Well, as a lawyer, you must like that kind of uh, definiteness. The client comes in, you say, well, look. If you're representing the party who's moving, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if, if you're representing the party being left behind, no. But at least you can you can say clearly to that party who's being left behind, you know, we don't have the chance of a snowball. Right. Because the legislature spoke. That's true. I would think, and I'm not, I've never been a judge, I would think that it's, for me it would be hard to rule on some of those cases where you've got two good parents You've got two involved parents, and because of this presumption, and and how's I understand the, the policy. How's the time been? Substantially equal. The case law is about sixty forty is the cutoff. Yeah. So if it's you know, but but you've got cases where someone's been really actively involved. Mm-hmm. Every soccer practice coaches the soccer team, does the you know all that kind of stuff, and because they have less than forty percent of the parenting time, for whatever reason, their kids are moving to Canada. And you're going to see these kids now a couple times a year. Are those cases still governed by the, you can only count the days in which the child has spent the night with you? Yeah, you count it the same way as the child support guidelines. Well, you can get creative with that. If you have partial days that are regular, you can combine them to get to your 12 hours for a count. Really? Uh, Well, there are some cases, the guidelines say yes, there's some case law that restricts that a little bit. But I'm just saying as far as a creative lawyering, Lawyers can make those arguments that you can, you have extra time that partial days can be combined. There's, I mean, the guidelines specifically say you can do that. So, for example, if every day after school I pick the kids up and keep them until six, so I've got three, three or four hours, right. five days a week. That's not, none of those are days, but you know I can combine them to. They Good. can be combined to count as a day. Now the guidelines say that, and there are cases that say that. On the other hand, there are cases that say you cannot. It's not a day. So. That's where effective advocacy comes in. I would think that would be a challenging. They're challenging for me as a lawyer, just as a person. Just sort of gut wrenching cases where you think, man, there's. This is I wish there the, were another way to solve this. Yeah, this is where the testimony of the party becomes becomes vital. Uh, we can talk about adding five days of, of three hours each, and what does that mean in terms of overnights, if anything. But when that party gets on the stand and talks about being at the soccer practice or the baseball practice or you know, taking care of, of the child and, and, and doing this and is a convincing, warm, live person, that sways a judge. I tell you, it really does. Well, but now with the the Supreme Court decision, the recent decision just this year, you know, that you that what you're just describing used to factor into the analysis of is it in the children's best interest to move? 
Um, because I have to weigh this other parent who's been very active and very, very involved and who is certainly fit, and there's no argument against mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That went into the, the weighing, and it no longer does. The, real, the question now is just very strictly, is this a reasonable purpose? And that can just be any legitimately proffered reason. And so that's where I think it gets hard. It, get, it, it would for me. It gets hard for me as a lawyer because I think, gosh, I wish there were, there's got to be some other way to solve this, and well, there's when not. It hurt, when it hurts for the judge, is uh, it turns out that the, uh, that the real purpose of moving is that uh, the parent has found an, an interesting person. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say it's the mother who wishes to move away. Uh, but the reason that she wants to go to Bessemer, Alabama, is that Bobby Joe's down there. Well, yeah, she also has a job offer down there. Now, that's a reasonable purpose. But, quote, air quotes, everybody knows it's really Bobby Joe in Bessemer. Mm-hmm. That's a tough case. It was tougher before. <laughs> it's not <laughs> now if you're going to follow this, the statute strictly, it's not as tough as it used to be. But it's, it's tough as a human, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, you gosh, the, the, the case that I'm thinking of, there was a case in Tennessee where the mother was engaged to a, a gentleman in Canada. And this was a case where the father was really super involved. They had five kids. And the court at that time weighed the effects, the, on, the effects him. on him and, and the effects on the kids from being deprived of right. seeing him and all that and said, you can't go. You, your fiancé can move down here. And that w- that outcome I don't think would occur today wow. because of the decision earlier this year. Now it's the analysis, if, if you're not exercising substantially equal time, the analysis kind of stops at is there a reasonable purpose? And there's case law that's saying marrying your hu- your husband being somewhere else um, is, is reasonable. So I don't know. Those are the ones I find more difficult. To mm-hmm. me, a post-divorce child custody is not that different from a regular one. But I, now that you mention it, I do think – People walk in with a little bit more hardened view at that point. They've tried it, and it hasn't worked mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And they're they're here because uh, I have to get this fixed. And yep. there's no there's less room to compromise at that point. Yeah, one party's got to rescue the child because this is not working. This is bad for the child, and that party is not going to compromise. Not that you know, not that you compromise all the time, but it does change the uh, the posture of a case. Did you have any memorable trials over a pet? No. And, Except the visitation. Yeah. And you've had people that have gone to you and you've had to decide, do we have visitation or not? Yes. Oh. Which is interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I, I don't know what authority you have to do that, quite frankly. It's a piece of property. That's a very good question. And I never questioned the jurisdictional basis for that because neither lawyer questioned it. Had it been questioned, the coward's way out would be to say, well, you know, that's, that's it's not on my table. I don't have to decide that. I wouldn't have done that, though. If the, if the, if the parties want a resolution, sure. I'll, I'll be the rabbi. And so you've had people come in and litigate who should have custody and who should have visitation of a dog. In deciding that, did you have to assess the uh, dog's best interest? <laughs> well, yes. What's the analysis? Well, I mean, it, it's, you know, who has done the hands-on care? Who has really? Spent, who has spent the amount of time with, with, with doggy? Uh, you know, how important is that person to doggy? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, as I say, dogs are people. They're important. They have emotions, and uh, the people are important too. And you know, it's, divorce is bad enough without losing your other friend. Right. <laughs> so, because this is a podcast, you can't see that Judge Swan brought his crystal ball to our interview. But trust me, 
it was there. I asked him to gaze into his crystal ball and share his predictions for the coming changes and challenges in Tennessee family law. My crystal ball takes me, first of all, backwards in time. This same question posed in 1982 or 1975 or 1960 would not have immediately called up the response that the blended family is going to be a change for America. And of course it has been. The growth of uh, divorce in this country after World War II changed things fundamentally. It used to be that everybody grew up in his uh, family of upbringing. That was his family of orientation. He had one parent male, one parent female, had siblings and cousins and grandmothers and grandfathers, and that was his orientation. With the growth of no-fault divorce and frequent divorces and remarriages, the blended family has become, became uh, a reality, a fact, a difficulty, a blessing, depending on how it worked out for you. That was a seismic change in family relations. All right, here we are today. What will be, will there be, any seismic changes in the next 30 years? Perhaps not, but there certainly will be a growth in the frequency of very interesting, complex biological issues presented to the court. And I'm thinking of in vitro fertilization. What are the parental rights of the sperm donor? What are the uh, parental rights of the uh, lady who accepted a fertile egg, perhaps not even her own egg? Those issues are going to blossom. They will not be statistically a large part of the family law docket, but they will be a fascinating part of that docket. And then there are other issues that neither you nor I perceive at this point that will undoubtedly arise because people are so complex and interesting. We know not what they are. But family law 30 years from now will be massively different around the edges. Will it be massively different at the core? I don't think so. (laughs) Let's talk now about life after the bench. You mentioned that you uh, have a mediation practice Mm -hmm. now. Um, I would I would think that your tenure on the bench would give you a certain gravitas with folks. It does. I think that's why lawyers. Uh, one of the reasons lawyers seek me out is they they know that uh, I have credibility. Uh, if I if I say something, they can probably take it to the bank, and their clients need to know that. Having having a, a long judicial practice definitely lends stature to me as a mediator. Well, I think it'd be an advantage. You know, every divorce is different factually. There no two are exactly the same. But you probably have seen just about everything, every sort of iteration there could be, or very close to it. And I think that would help as well, recognizing that, you know, I've seen these issues. I've tried the very issues that you're here on. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I have the, I can tell you how a judge is going to analyze it. And It's even better. If I know there before Judge X, I, I know Judge X, and I very likely haven't have an insight into how Judge X views that issue. So that is also very helpful. Well, if someone wants to seek you out as a mediator in their family law dispute, how do they find you? It's really easy. Uh, com takes you both to, uh, well, to all of my contact information 
the uh, Knoxville Bar Association mediation site is also a good way to go. Or, you know, I'm, I'm in the phone book. You can just call me up. I'm not in the phone book. but I don't think there's a phone book anymore. <laughs> there isn't any phone book anymore, is there? That's funny. I don't think so. That is really funny. <laughs> that's true. There is no phone book. And so that's judgebillswan.com. That's swan with two N's. That's right, www.judgebillswan.com. And that'll take you right to the skinny. After retiring from the bench, Judge Swan has not been idle. In addition to his mediation practice, he has been writing books. I asked him how his first book, titled Five Proofs of Christianity, came about. I wanted to see where I was in my own life, and then I explained where I was and am in that book. And I think it's, it may be of worth to uh, a non-Christian or a quizzical Christian to track what I did and why I did it and whether it's worthwhile. But I went on from that to uh, uh, write a book called Politics, Faith, and Love, a judge's notes on things that matter. And I talk about politics. I talk about faith, more of a development of my own faith life. And then love. What, what does love mean to me? Why do I care about it? How does it manifest itself? And certain other things I throw in called musings. And folks, uh, check out those books at judgebillswan.com. Absolutely. And they're available both in uh, you know, hard copy. Actually, hard copy, soft copy, and ebooks. Judge, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. And, My delight. Uh, thank you. And sharing you. some of your musings with everybody. Well, you so. honor me. Thank you. I look forward to uh, going online and seeing what nonsense I said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll make sure it happens. Thank you very much. All right. I want to thank Judge Swan for taking the time to reflect on his career and share his insights with all of us. If you want to use him as a mediator or check out his books, go to judgebillswan.com. That's Judge Bill Swan with two N's, all one word, judgebillswan.com. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends on social media or however it is you share things with your friends nowadays. I'm K.O. Hurston. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.